Let's do it. Main man. Main man. Main man. Main man. Main man. I was once described as the manager, the mentor, and the visionary who went to the theater with an unfocused dilettante and raised the curtain on a superstar. Hello and welcome. This is episode 26 and our series exploring the history of the management rights company Mainman, which was renowned in the 70s for transforming the business side of rock and roll. While allowing their Mainman acts to explore their creative freedom, the company pioneered promotion and marketing techniques that became synonymous with decadence, extravagances and indulgences that are now part of rock folklore. The challenge was we made a big deal about the retirement. Now, how do we unretire him? How does David Bowie come back? How do we frame that? And we blurted out in the middle of the meeting, ah, Bowie on Broadway, which RCA loved that idea. Main Man worked with a diverse range of clients that included Lou Reed, Amanda Lear, John Mellencamp, Mick Ronson, Moff the Hoople, Dana Gillespie, Mick Ralphs, Iggy Pop, and David Bowie. I know he started a riot with the Americans, and they said, oh, we cash, oh, that, that's, uh, that's subversive, and that's, uh, you know, oh, we went through hell. So, like the Diamond Dogs thing, where they airbrushed the dick off, and, you know, <laughs> I was having more erasure <laughs> problems. It followed me all through the 70s. In this episode, Tony DeFries continues with his recollections of the main man projects that involved the immensely talented composer and conductor Michael Kamen, who was brought on board in 1974 as music director for the David Bowie Diamond Dogs tour. In the years following Diamond Dogs and his work with Bowie, Michael and I remained friends, and I would call on him when I needed some help with a new artist... For example, when I started working with Mellencamp, um, the first album we recorded was Chestnut Street, and on that album, Michael also came in and helped with orchestration and especially keyboards and gave the ambience that was needed for some of the more interesting songs which up until now haven't received a lot of attention, but hopefully we'll get more attention from them going forward. Michael also brought on people like Dave Mansfield. David Mansfield was younger than all of us. He was literally a teenage prodigy. He'd started playing multiple instruments when he was still very young. He'd had bands, and um, he went on to play and compose some astonishing movie scores. For example, Heaven's Gate was one of his movies. He played steel guitar, mandolin, violin, and he became one of the people that we used quite often for the next round of Man Man Artists. Michael's career took on a trajectory of performing with many different bands, composing some astonishing movie scores. For example, he was the composer of the film music for the Die Hard movies, all of them, the Lethal Weapon movies, all of them, movies made by George Harrison through his handmade films, 
business, George and Michael became very close in later years. We actually contemplated producing a series called Music on Earth and discussed it with George and Michael and some other people in the BBC, I think, environment, which would have been something like the David Attenborough series where he did uh, Life on Earth. We were going to start doing something similar with different music from all the different countries and all the different environments and all the different groups and players on Earth. It was a very ambitious project, which unfortunately never quite got off the ground. But in the interim, um, as I say, Michael went on and did work with Pink Floyd before and after the split-up, which was quite interesting. Michael was probably the only musician who could get Dave Gilmore and Roger Waters to still talk to him, let alone work with him and make records with him after they'd broken up. Sometimes the, the music business works that way. I mean, Michael, for example, conducted Bono, who's not exactly the easiest person in the world to conduct, and Pavarotti singing together. The, the only time they did sing together, actually. And there was Michael waving the bat on and keeping everybody literally on their toes and in order. Michael was very good at making sure everybody stayed on track with the performance and didn't get sidetracked into, let's say, other things. <laughs> when the wall fell, it was Michael who conducted the performance of an enormous number of world-famous players and singers to celebrate the falling of the Berlin Wall. I took a young new artist of mine out to visit him in California and I was actually taking her around to different record companies in California. I'd taken her to see Jimmy Iovine and of course Dr Dre who was his partner in Interscope. I'd taken her to see Michael Austin who was taking over Warners from his dad and this girl whose name was Susie Thomas was someone that I thought had a big future. So I took her off to see Michael at Dave Stewart's house because Michael was using Dave Stewart's house as a California residence. And at the same time, I actually took her to see um, Bob Clearmountain, who'd become a very successful producer in the interim. But um, we went to see Michael and he was very happy to see us immediately started making marvellously elaborate cappuccinos. This is the sort of thing Michael did if you arrived. He'd make you a cappuccino with all the trimmings, you know, every possible uh, topping required. Meanwhile, he was about three weeks late on delivering the first X-Men movie score, which he had about half a dozen people working on different bits of the score with, of course, computer assistants. And meanwhile, the movie's producers were getting very agitated and some of Michael's staff were getting a little agitated themselves, like, shouldn't we be going to the studio to talk about the score? And Michael was saying, no, 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 let me just um, do this. And Dave Stewart had a very nice uh, studio that he'd built on the grounds of this house in Encino. So off we went and Michael listened to... Susie play and then they played some things together then when he was happy that 
he'd fully accomplished the task of helping out with Susie. He said, OK, now we can go to the studio and talk to those folks about their movie. <laughs> um, Michael was always willing to help. Then later on, he actually made a demo of three of Susie's songs, which, um, well, I actually Free Myself is probably the lead song, but I'm also very fond of um, It Isn't Much. And I got Bob Clear Mountain, who I'd also taken her to see when I was in LA, to do the mixing for us. We didn't end up doing a record deal for her, um, but she has since gone on making records, and ultimately she's got her first movie recording, The Lady from the Sea. So it's quite nice to see she's not a young artist anymore, but it's nice to see that young artists can keep on moving along and eventually get recognised and get a following. So these crossovers can actually make a huge difference to an artist's career. In Michael's case, when he was working with me in the 70s, I think even during the Diamond Dogs era, because we ended up on the road and different places at different times, he played me a song that he'd written for the Rock and Roll Ensemble. They'd never recorded it because he'd never managed to finish it or get the lyrics that he wanted for it to work properly. It was a very, very nice melody. And much later on, when he was asked to do the music for Robin Hood, he took that same melody and he wrote a song for it with Mutt Lang and Brian Adams. And together they came up with Everything I Do, I Do It For You, which was an enormously successful song. And this is what Mike was able to do. He was able to keep things moving along, share things with people, cooperate with people, and, and manage to make things work. And not everyone can do that. It's a, a very difficult trick, if you like, to pull off where... Just for example, on the Queen's birthday party that Michael was asked to do, there were many, many musicians involved, and one of them, of course, was Eric Clapton, and Michael and Eric had worked together over a long period of time. Michael was working out the programme for this spectacular event, which obviously would get lots of coverage and had lots of people performing and in order to make it work, he needed to recover eight minutes or so so that it would fit into the time frame and still give all the performers a chance to perform. He couldn't ask any performer to drop out because nobody wants to drop out of something you've been invited to by the Queen, after all. So, <laughs> so he had a problem. It turns out that I saw him in London just before this thing was supposed to go on. And he told me the story of how he managed to solve the problem. He decided to cut eight minutes off of the Clapton solo in Layla. Um, but he couldn't find any of the other musicians who were willing to ask Eric if he'd give up eight minutes of the solo. Because everybody was wary of suggesting such a thing, which is almost akin in musical terms to some kind of heresy. So Michael had to ask Eric, explain the problem and say, 
Would you mind if we just took eight minutes off of the solo? And Eric said, of course not. It's just a repeat of what I've been playing all along after all. <laughs> so sometimes the easiest way to solve a problem is just to present the problem to the person who it most concerns and ask them if it's a problem. It turns out for Eric it wasn't a problem. He's been playing the song for so long that he doesn't mind whether it's longer or shorter. It is after all. As in many cases, it's the same refrain. So after Diamond Dogs had gone by, Michael and I remained friends. Sandra and Michael were living in New York and so were we. And in September of 1975, on the very same day that I was born, the 3rd of September, Michael and Sandra had a little girl of their own called Sasha. And... A month or two later, actually on the 23rd of November, Thanksgiving Day of the same year, whilst we were on tour with Dylan and a bunch of other folk, that's myself and Melanie, we had our own little girl, Fleur. So now the two families of Cayman and De Vries had a baby girl apiece. And as they got older and they became very firm friends, which they still are today, Michael and I began to take a Sunday outing and we would swap the girls, literally. I'd take over Sasha and Michael would take over Fleur and off we'd go to a museum or a park or some other thing that would interest the girls or we hoped would interest the girls. (laughs) And we'd be alternative dads for the day if you like we went on doing this for quite a few years actually as they got older and you know they still were doing what they were doing and of course um, Michael had another little girl called Zoe we stayed close with the family and after Melanie died very sadly we still remained close as did Fleur so in the 1980s I met this wonderful girl from South Africa and we decided to get married and we wanted it to be a fairly small wedding so we didn't invite that many people but amongst the guests were Michael, Sandra, Sasha and Zoe and of course Marlene and I were there since we had to be (laughs) Marsha Hunt was there now Michael was always very friendly and across the board whether it was Bruce Willis or Roger Waters or George he was very friendly and on this particular occasion he had recently met through I guess through Sasha and Fleur or Sasha and or Fleur someone called John Privet now John Privet had a little girl who was similar age to Fleur called Prue now Here's a peculiar thing that happened. We've rented a house in London so that we can put up various people from the family and we've imported them from South Africa for the wedding and we've got the mom and the dad and sisters and even a grandma, I think. Prue comes to stay at our house in... um, It's like Notting Hill, I think it was, for a few days before the wedding. 
It was Fleur's there, and Fleur wants a friend. And then, perhaps a day or two before the wedding, Prue's dad comes to pick her up. But when I open the front door to greet him, and he sees me and I see him, we recognise two teenagers who once stood face-to-face in a South London garage by a place called The Elephant and Castle, named for a famous pub, actually. And this is a garage that my brother and I, who were still both in our teens, had just opened. It was on the site of what used to be a garage that was opened by my father much earlier, and we were opening it now because we wanted to do something that would remember him. And we were approached on the first day of opening our garage by a 13-year-old who actually was John Privet, Prue's dad, who told us that if we wanted to run a garage there, we had to pay him off, since this was, as he put it, his manor. In South London terms, your manor means a place that you can control going back to a more honest representation of a manor house. But it's your bit of turf and anyone doing business there has to pay you. And we said, well, sorry, but we don't do that and we're not willing to do that. And so John said, well, I'll have to bring my friend round. I said, well, bring your friend round and we'll bring our friend round. And so we duly both did. He brought Biffo, a large lad, also a teenager, (laughs) well-known for biffing people, hence his name. Now, his real name was John Bindon, and he has a long and colourful history, which will have to be told in another story. He's the only man I personally know who ever got away with murder, so that's another story. But in the meantime, imagine the surprise and shock for both of us, meeting on the steps of a very nice house, what John would have called a real fancy manor, in Notting Hill, which is also a real fancy place, and realising that we've both come a long way. John Privet was a gangster. He was a gangster from an early age, as was Bindon Biffo. Both South London lads, Biffo decidedly violent, although a very big man with a very fast move. He could move very, very fast. And quick-tempered, but at the same time could be very, very kind and gentle. Just depends. Short fuse. Privet, on the other hand, who was known as the Hedge for obvious reasons, first of all because his name was Privet, (laughs) but second of all because he was very good at finding things. So after we'd exchanged memories and realised that we both had daughters who'd been at school together for a while without either of us realising it, because you never bother to ask people's names in these circumstances when somebody's threatening you with um, extortion. There's no point asking them what their name is, is there? So we didn't. Now we recognised him as being him and me as being me, and I said, oh, you know what, John, I've hired your old friend, not now, but in the past, to do security for us. Oh, he said, well, Biffo's still Biffo. He hadn't changed much. 
And this is, by the way, the same Biffo and Bindon appears in Dana Gillespie's recently published marvellous book. And he was Dana's boyfriend before he was her bodyguard. He became her bodyguard later on through me. But early on, when he first met her, when she first met him, he was. And later on, she stayed friends with him all his life. She introduced him to Princess Margaret. That's definitely another story. (laughs) So, Privet then tells me that he's met my friend, Cayman, and he's got him some gear. I said, John, you can't start selling stuff that's fallen off the truck to people like Michael Cayman. He's respectable, and I don't want you to get him into trouble. So just tread carefully around that particular opportunity. John's specialty was selling you things that had fallen off the truck, hence his name, The Hedge. And his other specialty was popping off to Germany to pick up a Porsche and bringing it home and selling it. He was very fond of Porsches, very knowledgeable about cars, would often drive it from wherever he found it. Let's say it was Stuttgart, where the Porsche factory was across Germany to get it onto the ferry, so he'd have to drive across Germany and France. And if he was stopped along the way, he'd say, well, whoever he was stopped by, first of all, he'd never speak any language but English and with a heavy Cockney accent. And he'd protest that he was driving the car for someone who'd asked him to bring it back for repairs to Germany and then bring it back to England. And he'd have all the bits of paper that he needed to establish that. What he was really doing, actually, was stealing the car and (laughs) driving it back to England so he could sell it. So by this time, I was hoping he was honest, or at least honest enough to invite to the wedding. And we duly invited him and Elaine. John and Michael, who'd already met through Sasha and Fleur and Prue, and Michael had already found... John to be a very agreeable character, which, of course, John could be when he needed to be, and he he often was. Anyway, we've lost a lot of those people since then, but that also happens. So anyway, moving on with the Diamond Dogs story. We mentioned that we had made an album of one of those performances... In fact, it was made over a period of performances, a number of performances, that is. And that Michael was instrumental, as was Tony Visconti, in making it a viable live album and keeping a record, effectively, of the Diamond Dogs tour. Once that tour finished in California, a new set was created of a much simpler sort for essentially a different show. And the remainder of David's performances through 74, 75, mostly took place with a much simpler staged set. So people who didn't get to see that Diamond Dogs performance, it was never performed again with that set and all of those effects can look for it in a film that was made by Alan Yantop at the BBC. It's called Cracked Actor. If you can find it, it's 
a good way to watch a spectacular event unfold and various other elements of David's activities during the time and possibly catch a glimpse of what became the next tour. When that Diamond Dogs tour morphed into the Soul Tour, why did Michael Kamen stop touring with the main man team? Well, I think two things happened. First of all, um, probably Michael had a ongoing set of things because Michael worked with an enormous number of performers, just to mention some of them. He was working with Pink Floyd, as I mentioned before. He was working with Metallica, with Eric, with Queen, Who Wants to Live Forever, with Roger Daltrey, Aerosmith, Tom Petty, Bon Jovi, Brian Ferry, Eurythmics, Rush, Def Leppard, Herbie Hancock, Tim Curry, Coldplay later, Ryan Adams. But you can see there are a lot of people in there that he probably had to go and take care of some production or musical performance or related issue with. So in that case, I suspect that if Diamond Dogs was no longer a full-scale musical event, which it wasn't, because when David essentially abandoned, he started doing what was largely a singer-performer-styled set, where he wasn't having any kind of mechanical events on stage, where he really had a smaller, tighter band, and he didn't need that level of composition, control, or effective support of the band. The band became, featuring many of the same people, I think Earl Slick stayed on, I think Garson stayed on, a lot of the same people stayed on that latter, different portion. But because it was literally a different show, with a different set list, and a much reduced set of performers, it no longer needed someone with Michael's skill set. And so he went on and did many, many other things, including, I suspect, the first of the movies, because some of his movies were more obscure and earlier than the ones we've talked about. I think the answer is that is why he wasn't really more engaged, because he had an awful lot of offers coming his way, and he took them. So were you disappointed that the Diamond Dogs tour in its original format didn't go on and include the rest of the world? Was that your original plan? I would have preferred it to go on, frankly, and to become even a more larger or denser, maybe to start doing runs. It didn't need to have David at the centre of it, you see. It could have been done with characters. It could have become, in effect, freestanding without David, with other people. But it wasn't really the moment to do that because apart from everything else, David had lost interest in playing the part. And that was one of the issues with David. He didn't have a long attention span. He didn't want to be trapped in a a part. Uh, I knew that from him from the beginning. I I knew that that would be an issue. It's like having a super bright child who doesn't want to stick at one subject or wants to do multiple subjects. David had that I need to be me again thing. And of course he was still in and coming to another phase of his addiction. And he was, as that 
tour wound on, became the Thin White Duke. The Thin White Duke was obviously somebody who was um, operating with a lot of narcotic input and ultimately led to David and I passing company in the following year, 75, as a working team. So we wouldn't ever again sit down together in a hotel room and sketch out a Diamond Dogs play, which is a shame. And because David didn't ever really get another person to do that with him, he lost that ability to actually get outside of himself and become somebody else. Was it similar then to the demise of Ziggy? He just saw it as like, that's it, game over, time to do something else now. It was essentially, I don't want to do it anymore. Yeah. And it could have been, I don't want to do it anymore, but I don't mind keeping the property and using the property to let somebody else do it, which would have been a better idea. But I think he saw it as a trap, that he would have to keep on getting on that bridge and singing as it went down or up getting into that globe and reaching out to the audience. It's what most performers do. I mean, take someone like Ariana Grande, she just keeps on doing what she does, and she does it better every time. David wanted not to have to do that. Essentially, he didn't want to be Mick Jagger, I suppose. Can't really blame him, in a way. Tony DeFries explaining how and why the Diamond Dogs tour never journeyed further than the US in December 1974. And how the very talented Michael Kamen began his career as an internationally respected music director and composer on that tour with David. There are some great pieces of memorabilia from this period in rock history that are part of an ever-growing archive of main man documents, including Polaroids, contracts, articles, telexes, letters and production notes, a lot of them never seen before, that we're adding to the main man label website each week. It's a really fascinating record of a very exciting period in rock history. It's at mainmanlabel.com. And on the website, you can also check out the other episodes in the main man series. I'm Des Shaw. This is a Zinc Media MM Tech production. Thanks for listening.